Rebel, who, if you've been here, you know him. If you haven't been here, well, you're going to get to know him. So I really would just like to let him go and read. Everybody, Rebel Waste! Okay, I got poems and short stories for you today. But focal point is the short stories, so I want to sit down and read them like story time. Yeah. yeah it's just, that's okay. And I would ask applause to be done um, after two because there will be first a short story and then a poem that goes with the story so it's best to hear them both before there's a break and then the same will happen again and again and then I will end with a poem this first one's called snow walks with a spirit footprints in the snow follow me as I head to school the chill in the air is silent no cars do I hear as I blaze a trail without the use of fire, a foreboding comes along, comes alongside my prince, making none of its own, floating as a specter looming over my existence, denying me the ability to see the purity of the white water without rapids. Almost instantly, the snow takes on a light pink hue, the lightest of changes, maybe only susceptible to my subconscious perception of auras. The footprints continue to trail me and my ethereal guest. I turn to it, the faceless wisp of invisible smoke, and ask what brings it to my side. Without words or sounds or language of any kind, it responds, turn back. You are not made for what is ahead. I do not heed its feeling and continue along my path. The foreboding form tenses ever so slightly as my, at my voice's denial of its advice, handwritten on premonition walls. The snow begins to change again, turning a light uncooked salmon color or a newborn girl's swaddling clothes or whitewashed with reds. The foreboding spirit of my journey sounds again its warning. Turn back. You are not made for what is ahead. As I contemplate this temporal voice, I notice that indeed the snow appears to my eyes to be pink. No more supposed trick of the light or my eyes, bedfellows in the interpretation of visual arts. To prove my eyes are not deceivers, I would need a third observer beside myself and my foreboding spirit, who is now feeling as both a follower of my steps as well as a guide of my forward motion. The snow turns a deeper shade of pink, reminding me of the private pink areas of the women in the Playboy under my mattress. I blush a light red at the image and memory, and the snow changes with me. Playboy was given to me by my best friend in school, both of us in the hormonal-saturated year of 13, both of us the same height. My thoughts of the crude and perverted poses of the women turned to baseball, our pastime and summer friendship. 
I'm the pitcher and he is the hitter. For hours we would play in 90-degree weather, and we did not care, our fun cooling ourselves from the fires of the world. I turned to my foreboding follower guide, who has become silent during my memory stroll, and I noticed more about its form. No longer a formless mist, it now has taken the form of a shrouded imp, about my size, still floating along, hanging there like a puppet of God. I still cannot see its face. In the hood, there is a definite possibility for a face. It sees me sees me look into its possible face as I round the corner, just three blocks left till school. I hear faint sirens far off. It sees me turn, and with more sadness than it had it and it has in previous attempts to turn me from my path, it cries, Turn back, you are not made for what is ahead. Its fervency startles me as the snow turns bright red like a candy cane without the white that the snow was at the beginning of my journey. Sirens grow louder as I proceed. I think perhaps that some troublemaker has pulled the fire alarm, for the sound is most likely coming from the school. I'm a block away. As the siren grows louder still, I notice that my foreboding becomes frantic, and just as the school comes into sight, it abandons its missed partner nature and and sprints forward like a gust of wind and comes to land, making footprints in the snow. I was right. This follower I am now walking towards is my height. This now metaphysical character removes its hood. I see now that it appears to be a boy or a shaved girl. This figure turns and raises a hand in defiance of forward motion on my part, like the very motion would raise a wall impassable. I stop, however, and as I look at... The at first faceless face, I now can see a skull, but not a skull as you might see a skull in a doctor's office skeletons having been created of plastic. I recognize this skull. As the pieces of the face come back to me, the foreboding becomes the foreboding before me becomes tangent and frightening. I look away as the tears start and notice the snow is now a deep, deathly red mixed with even darker, almost black splatters of red. I am terrified. I look up to my foreboding before me, looking for safety, and it's my friend before me, my best friend from school. I see now that he is no longer of this world, as if his essence escaped his body from the holes he now has in his chest, erratically placed, not of a creator's making, but that of a destroyer's. My friend makes his way to me. His walk is recognize, his walk I recognize. He places his hands on my shoulders. I am crying now. With the love of God, he says, turn back. You are not made for what is ahead. He is smiling, tears of joy dropped on the blood red snow, as red as a rose field, as red as your skin after grasping a rose and feeling the thorns. I am frantic to hug my ethereal friend. Then as if I wished on a star or a birthday candle, he is materialized before me, metaphysical, becoming physical, heart beating with heart, music of breathing and beating. We release our embrace, hands still on shoulders and the final words I am to hear from my friend's voice outside of my own brain are, Turn back, you are not made for what is ahead, you are made for the arms of your mother who run. That last word brings his body to vanish. I heed my friend's final words of guidance. I now see he was a guide all along. And as I run, I sling words of sad confession. I'm sorry I missed the bus today. I would have been there for you. As I run, I feel his hands around me once more, and I am comforted. I cannot see those arms, but I hear their purpose. None of this is mine to bear. As I run, I hear another runner. No longer am I the only one making footprints in the snow. I see my mother down the path, yelling my name, the snow turning white with each frantic stride. We embrace. She entreats how I am. She explains what has happened. I ignore her frightened words and look back. And I see two footprints about my size embedded in the white snow with untainted smooth white around them.
Again, I am disgusted by what I read. Gun violence turns again like the next page flipped in a horror novel, and no matter how much I argue with the words trying to scrub the pages clean with boxes of soap, tragedy is already inscribed in this tome until we finish or put it down to instead live a different story. Okay. Here will be a poem and then a story. The poem ties into the story again, but a more, um, I guess you'll see. Here's the poem. We hollow gods and banal creators led, escaped with serpents' bellies upon the sod. On fallow lands left love, lost, faith unseated. We are the commanding voice that makes demands. I cannot see. There is a damp nothing under my knees. Musty and caged are my screams, my wings at the edge of their reach like a butterfly in a steel cocoon, like a weather-damaged bunker. Will I ever be free, or will I be like a globe boxed away and lost in the guest room closet? Then with a creak and a clang, a light appears like a fog. I cannot yet see through the dust of war, flying like molecules. Am I as little as I feel? A voice demands that I stand. I now glimpse faintly that there is a bed in the room with me, a small cot, and a thin sheet stained with dirt and fluids and still other sinister brandings that cannot be washed away. A voice commands derisively that I should take my, make myself look pretty. I survey the room to see if there is anything beautiful. Thin sheet like a wedding veil, small mattress, a concrete floor. There are no mirrors. A voice awakens me from my search, charges me to lay on the cot. I do. There are four bedposts on its frame surrounding a box of springs rusted from the rain. The voice reach out, reaches out and invades my blood with a rush of something cold like ice, and I become as numb as the space between earth and heaven. The ropes now tied around my hands and feet feel like balloon strings. The dark stains on my bed look like beautiful flowers, each smelling of rainwater. The strings then morph into ivy and lilacs, entangling my climb to meet Juliet in the moon. I hear her singing like a mockingbird in the rooms aside mine. I hear bed springs flopping up and down like salmon attempting to climb a waterfall. The raindrops sound like eagles diving for fish. I feel the vibrations of the ripples, the rocking of the waves slowly caressing my skin, dipped in a pond, like oil now sliding down my chest to my open legs. For a moment, I feel like nature is making love with me. But the light begins to fade silently. The meadow is now a burning forest. I feel the eyes of a wolf staring at me through the icy chill coming with the wind. The air tastes musty again. I am empty and frozen. The moon becomes like fire, cursing me with its callous song. The wolf's eyes appear above me, and the light transformed into a man. And for the first time since I awoke, I feel naked. The man is inside me. An apple is lodged in his throat. He is choking on his sin. He becomes rigid as the serpent poison is milked from him. He rolls over like a crocodile with a smile just as serpentine and vile. I am now enraged and I pull at the ropes attempting to free myself but they are holding fast. I feel like I am chained among tombs. A voice makes a foray into my cursing. Better rest up now. You'll have another customer soon. The depredation in the words reminds me of my exhaustion and I am quickly forsaken to my thoughts. We hollow gods and banal creators led, escaped with serpent bellies upon the sod. On fallow lands left love lost, faith unseated. We are the commanding voice that makes demand. Okay. 
this next poem and story, um, well, think of the poem. Imagine the poem were a painting. Death of a Centurion. The centurion has, a sla- has slashed his wrist with a gladius. Falling from his chair, silver coins fly everywhere. The goblet, golden and bejeweled, spilled their wine. The centurion is Philistine. The centurion's cold, dead eyes leak like rain from the night sky. Salt and iron mix crimson stars from eyes and wrists both scarred. The centurion is alone. The chill of the battlefield ignites his blood to freeze, his breath released among the decaying leaves and dust. The centurion has a vulture perched on his head, tearing at the scars, death upon the landscape mars with silent pools of scarlet seeping into the frozen earth. But birthed from the gleam of the rising sun upon the lifeless pools emerge the reflection of a ghostly face against song of birds in morning heard. The story has the same title. You are dead, yet I am still alive. We met in 97. I read about your story on a support group message board. You understood my fondness for needles and suicide. Your story was one of an immeasurable reality. Your last brush with oblivion had been 10 years before, sober for 12. My hospital bed was still fresh on my skin. Sometimes even the bandages still bled. My sobriety still feels like crawling skin. I guess I should explain. We never met in the traditional sense. Your knowledge of me was probably comparable to a blood donor's knowledge of those receiving transfusions. On the canvas behind me, I, have, I, I had painted the bloody scene I left for the paramedics. Some might find it greatly irreverent or even philistine. I find it therapeutic. At first glance, the painting does not portray life or death. That definition is for the individual to decide as reality is for anyone. The centurion slashed his wrist with a gladius, falling from his chair. Silver coins fly everywhere. The goblet, golden and bejeweled, spills their wine. The centurion is Philistine. I see life in those rich, dark colors. Your story spoke of a man lost. He had hit rock bottom. Five years of needles still had not quenched your sorrow. A dark Sunday night had taken your wife and infant child in a splash of lights and alcohol. At the time, you were on hour 65. Somehow you were able to blame yourself for their deaths. So you took to heroin to breathe for you. You got fired. Family had washed their hands of you like that centurion pilot in the Bible. You got evicted. Even you own everything you owned, you sold to allow you Everything you owned, you sold to allow you to walk the alleys of the city and sleep among the feral cats in unrecycled cardboard. It is the cruelest of irony how language has repurposed the term fix with its slang definition. Heroin has never fixed anything except maybe the credibility of human solitude. I lost my family twice, first to the bottle and again to his own criminal. I lost my father twice, first to the bottle and again to his own criminal drunkenness. My mother died from a complication in childbirth. The complication, me. I have no doubt that my father loved me, but my growing face resembles my mother's a little too much, I fear. Sometimes when I look at my paintings, I see my mother's tears. The centurion's cold, dead eyes leak like rain from the night sky. Salt and iron mix crimson stars from eyes and wrists both scarred. I believe that everyone who bears a story should note that that they cannot know of the multitude their story has touched. Death is too powerful a force to be confined to one's own imagined end. 
Having lost my mother and father and having no family to speak of, I was cast aside into the foster care system. My first family saw me as a meal ticket. Every day I was served neglect. A little over a year later, they lost their license, but surprisingly, no jail time. The second family was more loving. At least that is what I believed at the time. The wife saw me as a threat. The husband, the husband loved me nightly. The wife finally turned him in, though mostly out of spite rather than concern. I wonder if you read about it. It was in all the papers. My third family was caring, was caring though belt-wielding religious. Luckily, the, fa- the father suffered from chronic back pain. His pills did little to ease his suffering, but they did make my days white and beautiful. As time wore on, though, I needed more pills to make the days bleed through, and my foster parents caught on to the theft. That was the night I ran away. I took a few 20s from the man's wallet and ran away. I was just about to reach adulthood. A few days into my freedom, I met a man with a caring smile, a couple hot hamburgers, and a needle. Like I had, my freedom disappeared. Not even a milk carton displayed our picture. I guess victims aren't as newsworthy as criminals. The next few years bled beautifully. I walked the same streets you had, ran the same alleyways, and slept in the same beds you had called escapes. Till I found the irony of the drugs replaced with a knife. I remember the chill of the autumn season. I guess I can say I am lucky that a good Samaritan found me quickly. I had not planned for my death to become a painting. The centurion was alone. The chill of the battlefield ignites his blood to freeze. His breath released among the decaying leaves and dust. The second time we met, I was reading about your story from a computer screen. A week sober, the bandages still taped to my skin. The halfway house had internet access and a painting class as a form of therapy. Your story was that of strength and perseverance. It was of hope. Your story gave me a face for my freedom. Your story spoke of your past, but also of that present. About a week ago, you wrote, you found someone bleeding and alone in the very alleys you used to roam. You called an ambulance and the paramedics took that lonely soul to the hospital. A reminder to all that Samaritans do have faces. The third time we meet is this present, your name printed in the Sunday paper. A prominent drug counselor was found dead with a needle in his arm, the hypocrisy all too tantalizing for the vultures to let lie. Your story saved my life for the while, but it did not save itself. Your death is a reminder that I must hold mine close to my breast. As I sit in silence among the canvases and paint in my apartment, I think back to the second time we met, and then the first. I vaguely remember the love in your eyes as you tore your shirt to shreds to temporarily bandage my wrists. I think back to our tragedies, both so complete. Wouldn't it be so grossly poetic, I wonder aloud, if the drunken man who killed your wife and son had lost his wife in childbirth? The vultures upon that would revel in their gluttony. Centurion has a vulture perched on his head. Tearing at the scars, death upon the landscape mars with silent pools of scarlet seeping into the frozen earth. But birth from the gleam of the rising sun upon the lifeless pools emerge the reflection of a ghostly face against the song of birds in mourning heard. This last poem I'm going to end with is not mine. It is by a man called Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. It is one of my favorite poems since I found it. It is called The Children's Hour. I wanted to end on a rather happy note. Between the dark and the daylight, when the night is beginning to lower, comes a pause in the day's occupation that is known as the children's hour. I hear in the chamber above me the patter of little feet, the sound of a door that is opened and voices soft and sweet. 
From my study, I see in the lamplight descending the broad hall stair, grave Alice and laughing Allegra and Edith with golden hair. A whisper and then a silence, yet I know by their merry eyes they are plotting and planning together to take me by surprise. A sudden rush from the stairway, a sudden raid from the hall, by three doors left unguarded, they enter my castle wall. The they climb up into my turret or the arms and back of my chair. If I try to escape, they surround me. They seem to be everywhere. They almost devour me with kisses, their arms about me entwined, till I think of the bishop of Bingen in the mouse tower over the, on the Rhine. Do you think, O oh blue-eyed banditti, because you have scaled the wall, such an old mustache as I am is not a match for you at all? I have you fast in my fortress and with not let and will not let you depart but put you down into the dungeon in the round tower of my heart and there i will keep you forever yes forever and a day till the wall shall crumble to ruin and molder in dust away Uh, let's put our hands together for Rebel again. That's it.